The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and we do have breaking news this hour. President Biden is set to speak on the Israel-Hamas war momentarily. It all comes as grim details continue to emerge about the attack Hamas launched early Saturday and as Israel prepares a ground operation into Gaza. We'll have full analysis on the fallout in just a moment. Stocks are higher and on pace for the third straight positive day in a row, and you might say it's an unusual reaction, but they are helped by sharply lower bond yields today. That's a very typical flight to safety pattern. There's the benchmark 10-year 463, so about 30, call it 20, 30 basis points off the recent highs. Oil prices also jumped yesterday in their biggest one-day gain since April, but today down about a third of a percent. We've actually come off the session lows, moved up a bit, up 4% on the week now as concerns over regional oil supplies if this fighting deepens and widens, do persist. And that fighting is where we begin this hour. Let's get straight out to NBC's Ellison Barber. She has the very latest in Tel Aviv as nightfall approaches there. Ellison? Hey, Kelly, our team was closer to the Gaza border just a couple of hours ago in the Israeli city of Sidorat. That's about two and a half miles from the Gaza border. It is one of the cities that has just seemed to be under a constant uh, threat of missiles and airstrikes. While we were there, uh, the siren sounded and very quickly we heard and saw the rockets coming in and had to rush and seek to shelter. We know that that is happening in uh, the city of Ashkelon right now as well. Inside of Gaza, uh, Israeli military, they say they have changed the way they are going about their assault at this point, and they have shifted to a wave of airstrikes. They say they have a full blockade of the Gaza Strip. Uh, they have brought up over 300,000 reservists, 35 roughly Israeli brigades are around the border with Gaza, uh, working on, they say, infrastructure, seemingly preparing for a ground assault inside of Gaza. They have warned Palestinian civilians in the area, telling them that they should leave. But the entire area, all of Gaza, is blocked. There is one crossing that Israeli military officials were saying that Palestinians should use to try and evacuate. But then later, the IDF said they didn't know at all and they didn't think that that crossing was even open. So right now, inside of Gaza, the UN has said there are uh, close to 200,000 people who are internally displaced. Overnight, hundreds of rockets were fired into that area. Israel says they struck a mosque as well as homes, but they claim they did that because Hamas is uh, using those places, they say, to store weapons and also operate a command center. Uh, as night falls, the question is, will we see an increase uh, in even more attacks? You hear uh, some of the noises and things behind us. Tel Aviv, it's further away. But as we've spoken uh, with people who live here, they talk about how they feel like their life here has changed dramatically since uh, Hamas launched that assault on primarily civilians on Saturday. They say they feel like there was 
a life they had before October 7th, and now there is a life they have after it. They in Tel Aviv and other Israelis we've spoken to are very concerned right now about the number of hostages that are believed to be held inside of Gaza. Between 100 and 150 uh, are the rough estimates that we have based on what uh, Hamas and Islamic Jihad, other militants that operate in Gaza, have said, as well as Israel. Uh, the response that we have heard from Israelis here, whether they identify politically as leftist or uh, far right, they all say they want to see a forceful response from Israel to go in and rescue those hostages. Hamas has threatened to execute a hostage every hour if communities, civilian areas inside of Gaza are struck without warning. Back to you. Ellison, my understanding is it would be hard not to do so because it's so dense and the areas that they're targeting are kind of interwoven with those communities. I don't know if there's any update as well on what's been happening to the north, you know, along the Lebanese border or what uh, the latest is from Hezbollah, if anything, on that front. Yeah, Kelly, we have a team who is there, and in just the last hour or so, they were messaging saying that they had witnessed, they had heard rocket fire in that area in the north. Uh, For Israelis, they are looking at this situation, and they're uh, worried about kind of three pockets. You have the situation in Gaza, and remember, that is Palestinian territory, occupied territory. Israeli forces technically pulled out of that in 2005, but they've had a full blockade around it since then. So that's why it's so often described by Palestinians who live there as an open air prison, is they don't have Israeli forces inside as you would have in the West Bank, but it's completely surrounded and they aren't able to leave. Then you have the West Bank, uh, occupied territory where Palestinians live that is controlled by the Palestinian Authority. Then you have uh, more to the north, the Golan Heights, that is also occupied uh, by Israeli uh, forces. And there are all different factions, different spaces where Israelis are worried they could all soon join this fight with Hamas and they could see uh, rocket fire coming from the north, uh, coming over from areas in the West Bank where there could be some sort of militant response out of that area. That has not happened uh, yet to any sort of like notable uh, extent right now, right? But in the north, there are reports of rocket fire coming from there just in the last hour from our teams. And we've seen that in the last 24 hours as well. So that's something that uh, the Israeli community here is watching closely because they're worried that uh, civilians could really be sandwiched into this situation where maybe you have threats really uh, are coming from all angles. Yeah. Kelly. And as we understand, Hezbollah would have far more artillery as well than maybe Hamas. Ellison, for now, thank you right. so much. We really appreciate your reporting. Ellison Barber from NBC. We will hear from President Biden and bring that to you momentarily. He's running a couple of minutes late, as we understand. For some analysis here in the meantime, let's turn to CNBC contributors Fred Kemp, CEO of the Atlantic Council, John Kilduff of Again Capital. He's here on set with me. And Aham Kamel is head of Eurasia Group's Middle East and North Africa research team. Welcome to all of you. Fred, I'll start with you. What's at stake for the president's remarks here? Well, I think the president will act as consoler in chief. He's very good at that. He's done it a lot in the past. Also, the the tragedies he's had in his own family and life. Uh, there are 11 Americans that have died. Uh, we expect uh, that we're going to hear about more. Uh, there are a lot of calls have gone into the White House from families who don't know where their fam uh, their family members are. Uh, so far, there's no word that there's an American hostage yet. Uh, but that's a possibility in the future. He'll reassure uh, Israel, which will be important. There are a lot of pre-placed uh, weaponry there that w- is being released to go to Israel. Um, here's this, uh, here's what's going to be difficult. 
how do you deal with Iran? There is no doubt that Iran is complicit in all of this. Uh, the administration is saying they don't have any sign that they gave any directions, any green lights or any planning. Uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, uh, reported on Sunday evening that there was uh, planning. Uh, there was uh, a green light, and that comes from Hezbollah and Hamas sources. Um, part of the problem there is if you blame it, Iran, you have to do something about it. There's no doubt that the money comes from Iran. Uh, the uh, ability to build tunnels, the ability to shoot long-range missiles, the technology, uh, the intelligence, it all comes from Iran. So this, in many respects, is a proxy war, no doubt about it. I, I don't know what he'll probably say is there is a warning to countries in the region not to exploit or take advantage of the situation. And we also know he's going to say something uh, to the Jewish uh, uh, population of the United States. You're always worried about anti-Semitic outbreaks also within your own country. And so I think there'll be some reassuring words there as well. This is a very important uh, uh, speech for the president. One last thing that is going to be difficult to touch on, but it, it is true that Ukraine and Iran are, uh, sorry, Ukraine and Israel are connected by, by the fact that they're both state-sponsored state terrorism. Now, uh, and it's also using advanced weaponry and going after civilian targets. Uh, and there's a lot more talk now about the global order breaking down, the global order of rules and institutions that the U.S. established after World War II. It will be interesting to see if he makes any link there at all. Aham, what would you add to that? I think it's going to be a very, very difficult challenge for the president. You, on one hand, you have to show support to Israel. This is an unprecedented, really, security crisis. Nothing seen since 73, if uh, not longer. I think he has to uh, provide some assurance signals, of course, authorize some support. But at the same time, I think the intention here for the Biden administration is to look at the scale of this and the potential for regional war. I think... Uh, Priority number one will be on the regional front to prevent an escalation with Iran. The main risk that we see here is Hezbollah entering the fight, perhaps some even attacks from the Golan Heights mm -hmm. that put a lot more pressure on Israel. As far as normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel, that trilateral deal, U.S. security, Saudis and Israel, that's off the table right now. I just don't see how they can progress on that. Am did the U.S. somehow invite uh you know, this conflict in the sense of emboldening Iran with some of the deals we've made with hostage releases. And, you know, obviously oil is a, is a key part. We'll ask John about that in a moment. Um, just talk us through the geopolitics here as we see how the president crafts this message. Sure. I think the Iranians have been supportive of Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis in Yemen, uh, all different pro-Iranian groups to, to different extents. Hamas is not your traditional group that is completely under the command of uh, Iran. So they've done this partially on their own accord. Uh, it's important to remember the Gaza Strip has two million desperate Palestinians that I think partly this is a reaction to that. Hamas controls the Gaza Strip and the Palestinian people don't have much of a say. So I, I think at the same time you have to take into consideration that Hamas wanted to escalate uh, to try to create a crisis over here, probably at, on its own accords, they've decided to do that. I don't know if there is direct evidence that the Iranians were deeply involved in this operation, but certainly they've provided a lot of support over the years, training, arms and financing. And let me just quickly ask the question this way, uh, Aham, why, why now do you think they would? And, and Wall, the Wall Street Journal, by the way, was reporting months ago, back in April, that there might be preparations for something like this under the way. What is the, the opportunity that you think they've seized? 
Okay, I, I think for a while the U.S. has been sending mixed signals about its presence in the Middle East and North Africa region and its relationship, really, with Saudi Arabia and the rest of the world. The Iranians, of course, felt an opportunity to a certain extent. But I would remind you, the Iranians operate according to a very long-term plan, and Hamas has agency to a certain extent. Yeah. Let me turn to John Kilduff on that note and kind of bring you in for for the oil aspect in particular here, which is important, but it's not as if we've seen oil spiking above $100 a barrel or anything like that. Uh, the U.S. is desperate for more supplies to help keep the price from going too much higher. How does what's happened now complicate those efforts? Well, it's concerning in that, uh, obviously, um, to the extent this escalates or the Israelis do conclude that Iran proper was behind all this or helped orchestrate it, Iranian assets of, of some kind, either marine, uh, transit, or even in-country, are, are going to come under uh, some kind of uh, retribution uh, from the Israelis. There's no two ways about that. I, I would highlight, though, that you've already heard Khomeini from Iran deny any involvement here. And that is because that's the classic playbook for Iran, at least from the oil perspective, in that they embolden the, uh, the Revolutionary Guard mm. to do these things. A wink and a nod gets uh, put to them, and they go off and do it. And this way, there's deniability uh, from the government proper uh, in Iran for, you know, for these activities. So certainly, the IRGC had a role in this Hamas thing, if you were to ask me. Uh, but, uh, you know, and, and that will link back. But look, the, these atrocities are just beyond the pale here. I mean, we're learning today that the scores, score of babies were, were killed. I mean, I can't see Israel not really flexing uh, on this and bringing retribution that is going to put barrels of oil one way or another in the crosshairs. So the interesting thing about this is that a lot of the Iranian oil has apparently been going to China already. And there's there's been sanctions. Even today, it sounds like the U.S. I, I don't know what the latest is, but all of the places we're currently trying to get more oil from seem to be a, it's Iran, it's Venezuela. And this was part of what Ed Morrison City has said, that he's been bearish, meaning he thinks oil prices will see some downward pressure because these fragile five countries will ultimately bring more barrels online. Is that out the window now? You know, just as we're seeing gasoline prices falling and and some relief for consumers, do you think this now puts more upward pressure into next year or or no? I don't I don't I'm not sure. And I don't think so. Again, this deniability that the Iranian regime will have uh, in, in terms of being involved with this might allow uh, this to uh, the, look. Iranian oil production and exports are at multi-year highs. Uh, again, like you said, most of it going to China. Uh, the Chinese are going to be pushing back. The, you know, to the extent we want their help in calming this whole situation, they're going to say we want the oil supply lines to be maintained. And they're also going to be chastising Iran and warning Iran not to make trouble in the Strait of Hormuz or do other uh, do other activities that would disrupt the oil supply, spike it up back over 100, and and put the maybe the final dagger into China's economy as teetering as it is already right now. And just to add another element here, Fred, the ammunition shortages that already exist will be worsened by the fact that Israel now wants the U.S. to supply with ammo where we can't even supply Ukraine. We can't really meet the need at all uh, for the world right now. So there, because of this multifaceted international conflict, it does ultimately result in the U.S. having to make some tough choices, not least where to send aid and without a speaker of the House right now to uh, you know, help with that effort. Yeah, I think that's right. And and look particularly at Patriot uh, missiles for um, uh, aircraft, air, air defense. Um, and in the Ukraine situation, you also have to point to a lot of criticism of the Biden administration that it's been too incremental, it's been too slow in giving uh, Ukraine what it needed uh, when it needed it. 
And uh, and showing lack of resolve there, certainly the Biden administration has done a lot. Ukraine wouldn't be where it is without the help of the United States. But everything is interlinked. And uh, and if you look uh, in uh, in Ukraine, Iran is providing the drones to the Russians in order to attack the Ukrainians. If you look at Hamas, Hamas needs that from uh, the Iranians as well. Uh, China's support in, in Ukraine, you have to watch what China is saying about uh, about Hamas. Uh, so this is all linked together, and, and the White House is starting to look at things in a more interlinked way. The one thing that was interesting, your previous question of why now, I think you can't separate this from how close we were to a normalization agreement between Saudi and Israel. Yes. This is the, this is the uh, uh, Mecca, Medina, you know, the holy mosques were going to make a normalization deal with the Jewish state. Uh, it was going to be one of the biggest breakthroughs. It was 50-50 whether it would happen. It could have happened as early as next year. Uh, this is totally off the table right now, although the Saudis still would like to be able to come back to it at some point because of the defense agreement they would have reached with the United States through this, which they now look at mm -hmm. and need more than ever, looking at the Iranian threat to, to Israel. And, and you can't help but think that a lot of the timing of this was to throw off what would have been a, a real regional alignment. Uh, just finally, I was supposed to be in Israel this week working on that. The Atlantic Council, together with the Talpins Foundation, was bringing together President Netanyahu and ministers from Arab states to work on economic integration of the Abraham Accords uh, countries. This sort of thing is now going to be very hard to advance mid medium to short term, probably also medium term. Uh, so there's just a lot, a lot at stake. No, I'm so glad you brought that up, Fred, because reportedly as they were seeking, you know, sort of to move in this direction, Saudi and Israel normalizing relations, one of the things that had stood out to people was the fact that Saudi wasn't more forceful and its support at times for the Palestinian cause or for uh, certain aspects of that uh, situation. So, per, you know, there was perhaps perceived by Hamas or, or whomever as as not quite what they were hoping for from their former staunchest regional allies. Well, certainly uh, President Netanyahu was being was being pressured by uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to reach some sort of progress uh, with the Palestinians toward uh, a two-state solution before they were willing to uh, to sign on to normalization. That's way off the table right now. And, uh, and it's going to be very hard politically for either one of them to find their way back to this so I really don't think you can separate this. Um, and uh, and also, uh, it, this does play into Iranian interests, even if we can't quite see Iranian fingerprints on the actual actions thus far. Aham, my understanding as well is that those asked about the possibility for that Saudi-Israeli um, sort of accord to still happen over the weekend said basically, you know, it's too early to tell. They didn't say, no, forget it, it's out the window, which is interesting. So, I, you know, I think the Saudis are going to try to reinvent what their sort of deal would look like, bringing in the Palestinian issue after the war in Gaza ends in some way, shape or form. Difficult to talk about really peace at this time because it's Israel is focused on really rebuilding deterrence. What I will say is short and medium term, the Saudis will care about public opinion. All of the Arab states will have to take care of that vulnerability. But long term, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, I think, wants more regional integration. The U.S. security element of this, I think the crisis that we see today is going to remind the Saudis that you need hard guarantees rather than soft ones from the U.S. under any arrangement.
All right, gentlemen, we'll take a pause, take a quick break. We'll come back uh, to hear from the president, Fred Kemp, John Kilduff, Aham Kamel are all with me. Coming up, we'll also look at global oil supplies and whether an upward spike could threaten a rerun of those stagflationary 1970s, causing some big headaches for the Fed. Speaking of the economy, we've also got the latest CNBC rapid update with a look at GDP estimates as earnings season is about to begin. And as we go to break, here's a look at your markets, which are green across the board. All sectors are positive. The Dow up almost 200 points. The Nasdaq, the S&P, two-thirds of a percent, and the Russell up 1.4% today. The 10-year yield retracing all the way back to 464. We're back right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. Just had a three-year bond note go up for auction. Rick Santelli is here with the results and the action for us. Rick, good afternoon. How's it looking? You know, it was a pretty messy auction, all things considered, and it should be not surprising to anyone that that would be the case. It tailed because the market kept moving, yields moving down, of course, which means that price was moving up. So many investors were sort of chasing the auction. But what I find most interesting today is the fact that if you look at a short maturity like a two-year note, we continue to see that the bulk of the activity that used to go into more short maturities were down about 13 basis points in a two-year. And if you open it up to a two-week chart, you can see we've definitely scaled down on these yields, especially after the big spikes from Friday. But as you look further down the curve, the numbers actually get bigger, meaning we're seeing more buying in a 10, pushing yields down in a more traumatic way than a two-year, which really is some, something a bit different than history dictates. And I think one of the reasons is because we've seen so much of a big move to the upside in yields on the longer maturities, I think that investors are getting a bit braver that there'd be a little bit more activity out on the curve. But I want to stress, whether it was yesterday, obviously, with cash markets closed for Columbus Day or today, the markets are having a problem with the jump in, jump out mentality in the marketplace. Suffice it to say that yields are moving down for obvious reasons now on the geopolitical front, but this just makes everything harder. Depending on how long the action in the Middle East goes, how much influence is exerted in the 
fixed income space, which is going to make monitoring what the Fed and the way debt and spending are affecting interest rates, it's going to be that much harder to scrutinize and label accurately. It's very well said, Rick. Can you also just put the dollar in context as well? We were recently at about 107. It was a high since maybe November or maybe almost at that kind of decade plus level. Where are we now and how could that complicate things? You know, if you look at a dollar chart for the last couple of weeks, and I'm I'm sure we have that loaded in, we've been scaling down almost every session for the last four or five. And you're right, this is coming from a very lofty 107 handle that we had last week. And I think that really underscores another difference. The gold market is acting somewhat normal. Uh, It's a bit higher. But yes, the dollar index is not experiencing the normal flight to quality that it once did. And I'm not exactly sure why FX has gotten so much more complicated, whether it's the lack of flight to safety in the dollar or even in the yen for that matter. But I really do think that considering all the issues prior to the geopolitical concerns we are now experiencing, that foreign exchange has gotten a bit more tricky, especially considering the debt situation in the U.S. That's very strange. I appreciate you pointing it out, Rick. Thank you. For now, we appreciate it. Rick Santelli. Bonds are pulling back in that classic safety trade today, so at least some parts of it are still working. Does that mean the highs and yields are behind us? My next guest say 10% on the four-year is next, and the earnings recession may also be about to end. For more, let's bring in Eric Nelson. He's a macro strategist at Wells Fargo, along with CFRA's chief investment strategist, Sam Stovall. Welcome to both of you. Eric, I'll just start with you. Bonds are, are all the action these days. And do you think what's happened in the Middle East is in some ways a catalyst for the rally that you've been expecting? Uh, not not so much, Kelly. I mean, it certainly has, has been something of a contributor. I think part of it is that you've just, you've had an extreme move here, uh, you know, 100 basis points in a very short space of time. And uh, you know, obviously, we did have some uh, some relatively good jobs growth uh, numbers last Friday. Um, we do like to say that, you know, markets do tend to you know, an uptrend's peak on good news. So um, perhaps there's a little bit of, uh, you know, realization we couldn't sell off much more in the treasuries on this relatively good number. Um, we had some, yet yeah, as you said, some geopolitical catalysts. And, you know, the Fed has been a little bit more cautious with regards to further hikes. So all that has contributed to some pullback in yields here. When we say it looks like you're expecting maybe 4% to be the, the next kind of level or the, or where we're headed by early next year, is that because you're bearish on the economy or kind of what's implied there for GDP? Yeah, that's a huge part of it, Kelly, is we're looking for a U.S. recession. I realize that uh, everyone's been looking for a U.S. recession for a long time. Hasn't happened yet. The key here, though, is it's going to be a grind for the next few months, probably one or two months. We're going to consolidate here, maybe go a little bit lower. That next big 50 to 75 basis point move back down to four, though, is going to take a recession, I think. And and right now, with where U.S. jobs uh, numbers are printing, we're just not quite at the level where we're going to start to see a big rally here. We're going to have to wait for that, I think. Sam, I heard the R word. I got to bring you in because you're saying, hey, everybody, while while the macro recession, who knows, may yet still be upon us, the earnings recession may actually about be about to end. Is that right? That's right, Kelly. Right now, expectations are for a 1.2% year-on-year decline for the S&P 500. But uh, if history is a guide, because in 54 of the last 56 quarters, actual results have exceeded end-of-quarter estimates. So this actually could be the start of a new earnings recovery. 
And so when you say the start of an earnings uh, recovery, then then that could be one factor perhaps underpinning the S&P. So what's priced in right now and, and kind of where does that leave us on valuation and where do you see earnings headed? Well, I see earnings headed up uh, by 8% in the fourth quarter and about 12% for all of 2024, with each quarter being successively higher. Uh, right now, we are looking at the uh, the PE on the S&P, trading at about a 10% premium to its average going back to 2000. But typically, in the early phase of a bull market, you do tend to see PE multiple expansion because prices lead fundamentals and investors are diving back into stocks in anticipation of earnings to uh, follow suit. Yeah, and, and to some, this will look like maybe an early part of recovery. Some of us are worried we're just picking up pennies in front of a bulldozer. So what's been going on? I don't know, if Sam, if you can speak to this off the top of your head, but what's been going on with corporate revenues where we understand, you know, nominal GDP in the economy certainly ain't growing the way it once was. No, well, uh, revenues are expected to be up about 5.5% in 2024. Uh, so we've actually seen an improvement in revenues as well. Certainly not by much. Uh, and depending on what kind of a penny it is, if it's a 1909 SVDB, yeah, I'd take that chance. <laughs> sure, if it's worth, you know, $10 million today or something to that effect. Uh, and finally, Sam, then for, are there any one-off factors that are helping boost fourth quarter earnings by that amount? Well, I think that it, you couldn't really necessarily say that there's a one-off. Um, we still ha have had headwinds in terms of higher um, interest rates, oil prices, the value of the dollar, worries about China, and now add to this the Middle East. Uh, but certainly, should we end up seeing uh, many of these headwinds uh, start to dissipate, then I think that that would make people feel better about the future. And with the banks the first to come up, uh, the major center banks are expected to show a 3% gain versus a 26% loss for the regionals. If the quality, uh, the loan quality remains elevated, then I think that could allow investors to breathe a yeah. sigh of relief. Gentlemen, one moment, if you would. Uh, Fed Governor Chris Waller speaking right now about monetary policy at an event in D.C. today. As investors wonder if a Fed pivot is at hand, people are also wondering about how the war in Israel is already impacting those GDP growth numbers. On both counts, let's bring in Steve Leesman with the headlines. Steve. Thanks very much, Kelly. Fed Governor Chris Waller saying in his speech that the Fed has taken forceful action to reduce inflation and, quote, we will stay on the job to achieve our objective of 2% inflation. Not hitting, though, whether he believes another rate hike is needed to achieve that objective. For that, we have to go earlier today to Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic. He repeated that rates are, quote, sufficiently restrictive and said the Fed does not need to increase rates anymore because there are still impacts to come in part from rate hikes already in train. But he added there's, quote, still a long way to go to get inflation uh, to get inflation to target, a suggestion he favors keeping rates higher for longer. Now, Bostic said he expected an economic slowdown, and that's what is expected in the CNBC Rapid Update after a very strong third quarter. The CNBC Rapid Update, it's an average of 13 tracking forecasts this month, sees 3.8% annualized growth in the third quarter, a number, by the way, that had been forecast at just 0.3% before the quarter started, a resilient consumer and strong business investment forecast to repel that growth in the quarter to the best showing since 2021. 
But then the slowdown starts. Economists have long predicted one. It hits in the fourth quarter, they say, this time, and it lasts into next year when growth is seen below each of those quarters. You can see below 1% through the second half of 2024. But there's reason to be skeptical here. Forecasters have continually predicted this slowdown, only enough to revise up the current quarter, sometimes by a lot. And as Bostic said, the war in Israel does raise additional uncertainty about the outlook, but it is not seen at this moment as a major economic event for the U.S., though, of course, Kelly, one of immense human tragedy. You know, Steve, not to, to draw a parallel to McCarthy, but in the same way that he didn't rule out running for speaker and therefore let people speculate, is Waller, by, by not explicitly saying he'd want another hike, is he leaving open uh, the possibility for the markets to say, well, maybe he's backing off and we can run with the, the Lori Logan and, and the Bostic idea? <clears throat> yeah, don't don't do that. Uh, <laughs> that's a great point you're making here, Kelly. Um, uh, Waller is giving a speech about uh, an economist uh, and his work in regards to uh, uh, monetary policy rules. He mentioned just two things about monetary policy that I highlighted from that speech. It's actually an interesting speech about monetary <laughs> policy rules, if that sort of thing turns you on, of course. But but um, uh, Waller and I think that there's there's two folks out there, two kinds of folks out there. One's very few who are either saying we don't need another hike or suggesting we don't need another hike. Another group that says, you know, we need another hike. And there's, I guess there's a third group in the middle that's kind of leaving the door open. All right, Steve, for now, thank you, Steve Leisman. Uh, going back to Eric and Sam, gentlemen, before I let you go, Eric Nelson in particular, you want to react to that? What do you think the bond market's going to read or not read into comments from Waller, but also the sum total of what we've heard from Fed officials so far? Well, what's really interesting, Kelly, is, is you look at the, the you know, 100 basis point sell-off in 10-year yields. It's been not necessarily accompanied by a, an increase in ex expectations for Fed hikes. Fed hike pricing has more or less been stable for the last month or two. Uh, so I do think that uh, the Fed's going to continue to expect no hikes from the Fed. I think you need at least another month or two of very strong jobs growth to maybe get another hike in December. But we're expecting no more hikes from the Fed. So I think the front end can be a little bit more stable while the back end moves around. Again, until we see that bigger growth slowdown in the U.S. All right. He's got his bare ears still on or whatever. Eric Nelson of Wells Fargo, Sam Stovall from CFRA. Really appreciate you both joining me today. Thank you very much for your time. Coming up, the latest test for the IPO market. Birkenstock is set to price after the bell. We'll look at investor demand and what it could mean for the uh, other companies that are still in the pipeline, of which I can't even name one right now. Uh, but as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map with Boeing, Coca-Cola, and Amex leading the way. Two to one gainers versus decliners today. Some weakness in tech, notably with IBM, Salesforce, uh, Microsoft all declining, and Travelers the worst performer. We're back after this. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation. Welcome back. You can see the markets are still positive across the board behind me. The Dow up by half a percent. The Nasdaq leading the way up three quarters of one percent. All 11 sectors are actually in the green with consumer discretionary on top up about two percent. And that sector is helped by travel and entertainment names outperforming. Caesars, Carnival, Marriott, Royal Caribbean, Hilton 
all among them. And the retail stocks are also rebounding today. Target and Dollar Tree having their best days in nearly a year, and it's been a rough year for them. Dollar Tree now off its 2018 lows. It's up 4%. BNP Paribas did initiate coverage with an outperform and 139 price target, about $30 above where we are now. And Target, I'm sorry, Pepsi coming off its lowest level in over a year. After beating estimates and raising its full-year outlook, and the CFO told CNBC they are not seeing any impact from the weight loss drugs on sales at this time. Pepsi up 2%. Coming up, a tough week for an IPO, or is it? Birkenstock shares expected to price after the bell today. We'll dig into the numbers next. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Birkenstock's IPO is set to price tonight. Let's get over to Leslie Picker with some of the key details for us. Leslie, it's always about pricing. And I was joking earlier, who else is in the pipeline? And maybe Stripe is. But uh, do bring us up to speed. At the top end of the range. However, we have spoken with some sources who said they were still wavering on where to price. And those final decisions are expected after the bell tonight uh, with the debut right here on the New York Stock Exchange tomorrow. At the high end of the range, Birkenstock would be valued at $9.2 billion on a non-diluted basis. Birkenstock and its selling shareholder, L. Catterton, intend to raise as much as $1.6 billion. Three cornerstone investors have indicated interest in purchasing more than $600 million of the offering at the IPO price. The IPO process itself hasn't been without exogenous challenges. The roadshow almost thwarted by a government shutdown, remember that? And then the weekend's terrorist attacks in Israel add another layer of uncertainty into the markets. But I am told Birkenstock is still forging ahead here. The company traces its roots back nearly 250 years and only two years ago was acquired by the private equity firm L. Catterton and the family office of Bernard Arnault. That's the billionaire founder of LVMH. So this is a pretty quick turnaround for them and will be closely watched by the private equity and portfolio companies that are out there as a barometer for the market's appetite for sponsor-backed deals. That pipeline continues to grow. So this is going to be an important one uh, to watch tomorrow, Cal. Oh, yes. And we are squarely focused on private equity in particular uh, for a number of reasons lately. Leslie, thank you very much, Leslie Picker. We've got an early earnings read on the luxury consumer next as well. And before we get to that, check out shares of Truist. Popping on news, they're in talks to sell the remaining stake in their insurance arm to, yep, private equity firm Stone Point Capital for about $10 billion. But keep an eye on this announcement as we head into financials earnings season. Truist shares are up 7% on that move. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back, everybody. With a quick scan on the markets, you see the Dow's not only up 186 just off session highs, but the VIX is lower today as well. So it's down by about half a point. As we've pointed out earlier, a lot of interesting cross currents where it's not exactly the flight to safety trade you might expect. The dollar's lower. The VIX is lower. There's the you can see that on the bottom there trading just under 17 uh, and bond yields are lower as well. The Israel Hamas war is putting pressure on Republicans to act quickly on electing a new House speaker tomorrow. Will it happen with both House Majority Leader Steve Steve Scalise and Freedom Caucus co-founder Jim Jordan vying for the top job. There's even talk ousted Kevin McCarthy will run again. Joining me now is James Pepikoukis, economic policy analyst at the American Enterprise Institute and a CNBC contributor and author of the new book, The Conservative Futurist, How to Create the Sci-Fi World We Were Promised. Uh, Jim, welcome. Appreciate you joining me. Uh, Thanks for having me on. So where do we begin? Uh, It doesn't sound like either Scalise or Jordan has the votes right now. 
Well, clearly, uh, I think the odds of this being a multi-vote affair uh, are fairly significant. Um, I'm not sure the the McCarthy effort is about really putting in uh, returning Kevin McCarthy to the speaker's role or just making things very difficult uh, for Jordan and Scalise. I mean, listen, at this point, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that the next speaker is Kevin McCarthy. Do I think that's likely? Probably not. Uh, but, you know, there's probably going to be multiple rounds where there's going to be a lot of unexpected things happening, and that could be one of them. Do you think if the Israel war had happened a week sooner that they still would have ousted him? Uh, I'm not sure who would want the job. I think having a certain level of continuity. But listen, the people who really did not want him in that job, did not want him in that job. And I think these kinds of appeals to to uh, what would be good government or the greater national interest, I'm not sure any of those would have cut any ice with that group. I wonder if it worsens some of the problems because now the prospect of, of sending aid to Israel, sending uh, munitions, whatever it is, comes on top of the fact that supplies to Ukraine are already running out. But I have to imagine it's pretty bipartisan, the support for Israel going forward. It's just that this is one of the issues the party's very split over in general. Right. Listen, um, there are a lot of things that need to be get to get done. Uh, you mentioned aid to Ukraine, uh, just, you know, making sure the government can keep on running. Uh, you know, that's up in the air. There's, you know, a variety of other bills, you know, per, you know, per, you know, permitting reform. And this is another thing. You're right. You would hope at least that both sides can come together. We can get a new speaker and we can get the aid that Israel needs. That said, it looks more likely than not we could be headed for a shutdown because it, this was the week they were supposed to pick the new speaker. It now looks like they're going to need at least another week. If it's into next week, that's only only leaves 20 something days until November 17th, right? Listen, yeah, uh, listen, it's not going to surprise me that given this level of dysfunction uh, that we will get a, a shutdown and perhaps an extended shutdown. No one should think that we are entering a new era of, of togetherness in the House because Kevin McCarthy is gone. In fact, there will be a continued level of dysfunction for the time being. I think the average voter now senses, uh, Jimmy, I might be wrong, that um that the world has more conflict breaking out than it did previously. What are the political ramifications of that, if any? Well, it looks like we're in a dangerous world. You have uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You have this massacre in Israel. And one could easily paint scenarios where uh, Hezbollah gets involved, the U.S. gets involved. There could be terrorist attacks in the United States. You have what's going on with China. Uh, you know, will they invade Look Taiwan? Look at Africa, by the way. You know, we don't mention there may or may not be more spillover there, but that's about the worst that continent's looked in a, a decade or so. So, you know, we 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 have we have some you know some Republicans in the House who you know worry about spending and so forth. If you're if you anticipate the United States getting its uh, debt problem under control through sharply lower defense spending. That just seems really unlikely. I mean, Absolutely. like either the CBO has predicted you know, a slow, a slow decline uh, that to me, a you know, a, a gradual stability or a set in defense spending might be uh, more likely. You know, but I would hope that the seriousness of our global situation would, would create a new level of seriousness in our government where we would look at leaders you know, for their serious policy proposals, not because they want to be on television or just or, or, or create a kind of media personality or become influencers like their young YouTubers. 
if America ever needed uh, you know, serious leaders trying to honestly grapple with the problems facing this country, this would seem to be one of those times. But I think the question is a difficult one about, given all the conflicts that you described, should the U.S. then kind of be the army for the world or recognize that that's nearly an impossible and perhaps a bottomless pit kind of task? So I, I'm curious whether you think this kind of emboldens the more moderate Republican wing, the ones traditionally pro-defense, or the one that argues like, hey, we can't solve uh, everybody's problems. You know, you got to take care of people in your own neighborhood. Well, listen, uh, you have people you, you know, on, on the left who seem uh, very concerned about Ukraine. You have people on the right. And certainly, you know, this isn't, you know, definitional. There's people on both sides uh, who can about Israel. But I think if there's one easy lesson to draw, that when the U, when the U, when the U.S. is perceived, you know, rightly or wrongly as distracted or uncommitted or weaker or has less influence in the world or is not willing to exert the influence it does has mm -hmm. does have. Uh, the world becomes a more chaotic place. That is a lesson over and over and over again. And if the people on the fringes think they will get, they will have a more peaceful world, a more prosperous world with the U.S. withdrawn and bringing up and, and raising its drawbridge, mm -hmm. I'm just not sure there's a whole lot of evidence uh, from current events that that's true. Yeah, I think the only question now is in what way does the chaos spill back uh, into this country if it hasn't already? Uh, and hopefully we don't get a, a bad answer to that. Uh, Jim, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today. Jimmy Pethokoukas with AEI, author of The Conservative Futurist. Uh, you can get it at book, bookstores now. Coming up, LVMH finishing up its earnings call. Shares are lower in extended trading by about 1.5%, but you can see the turn there. We'll talk about where management is seeing pockets of weakness in the luxury space next. Welcome back, everybody. We've got an earnings alert in the luxury sector. LVMH reporting results at the close of the Paris market. Robert Frank has the numbers. A little bit shy, Robert? A little bit, Kelly. You know, when you look at the luxury consumer, LVMH is the bellwether. And luxury investors going into this earnings in the call, they were really focused on China. Instead, it turns out the problems are really in Europe and the U.S., Overall sales grew about 9%. That was well below the 11 plus percent that analysts had expected. Wines and spirits were the big loser in terms of groups. They were down 14%. Fashion leather goods, they were up 9%, but that's still well off the 21% growth we saw in the second quarter and 20% average we saw in the first half. Company CFO Jean-Jacques Guionnet saying that, that LVMH is seeing a quote, Notable change in Europe as consumers there pull back on luxury. U.S. was also down about 1% overall. Mainly that was due to weakness in cognac and especially in watches and jewelry in the U.S. And they cited Tiffany as an especial source of weakness there. China actually surprisingly doing okay. Guinea saying, quote, no major change in the business we do with our Chinese clientele. So that was Perhaps an upside surprise for analysts, it was not weaker than expected or stronger. The problem was there was little or no guidance for the fourth quarter of next year. Fourth quarter, of course, really important, the most important for luxury companies. Guinea saying they do have some big marketing campaigns and lots of big events planned. And we'll see whether that's reflected on margins. Remember, Kelly, LVMH just reports sales or revenue in these quarters until the end of the year when we finally get true earnings. You don't think that Tiffany Fire had anything to do with it, with the weakness there? No, that was that was brief. I, I think that, you know, broadly speaking, 
it's the aspirational consumer that's really getting hit hard in luxury right now. And mm. Tiffany, for all their efforts to move upscale and to right. sell very expensive stuff, still sells a lot of entry-level silver stuff. And I think that's the part of the business that's weaker. Bulgari, which is a higher-end jeweler that they own, doing better. <laughs> oh, oh, those little peons with their silver jewelry. Robert, thank you very exactly. much. The aspirational category thank is you. challenged. Robert Frank reporting on LVMH. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 